pray together. Father, we open wide our mouths and ask you uh, to feed us. Lord, we do not live on bread alone, but on every word uh, that comes from your mouth. Uh, Feed us now. Make us hungry for your word. Help us not to trust in our own evaluation of our lives in the world, but Lord, look dependently uh, toward you. Uh, Lord, show us who you are, who we are, and what our world's like uh, through this passage. In Christ's name, amen. Um, all right, honestly, uh, who's a Bachelor Bachelorette fan in the house? Do we have any? Okay, if that's how many there are, there's really twice that many. Uh, you're just afraid to raise your hand in church saying that you like The Bachelor. Um, but uh, the, here's, if, if you've been un- living under a rock since about 2002, uh, here's the plot of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. If you're uh, the, in The Bachelor, you have uh, one male who has 30 females, uh, vying for his attention. And then the flip side is the bachelorette has 30 men who are vying for her attention. I think when it comes to the bachelor, we all fall into one of two camps. Um, either uh, it's your guilty pleasure and you don't miss an episode. Uh, that's those of you who raise your hand and the other half of you uh, who are ashamed to admit it. And then um, the other half, the other camp, uh, are those who think it's really fake who think it's easily dismantled, and who judge all those who take part in the cult of it. But here's one thing, uh, that's for sure. It is enormously popular. Uh, And reading about this week, there's actually um, some books that have come out recently that aren't just um, Hollywood news about it, but that are really kind of in-depth pro tips on, um, uh, on The Bachelor. And uh, one journalist followed several scenes or several seasons behind the scenes, and uh, she talks to the contestants, and she talks about how their life really is one of captivity. They're not allowed to have their phones with them. They're not allowed to watch TV. They're not even allowed to use gym equipment, which is hard to believe, uh, but it's true. Their, really, their whole life is about the producers prompting them uh, to talk about what they think about The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. They've got to talk about what they share together, how they feel about the person, uh, how seeing them with other contestants makes them feel. That's really what the show is all about. So here's my question. Why would anyone want to be on the show? Well, I think the answer is pretty easy, don't you? I think it taps into our primary needs for control and our primary need to be loved. You'd hate to admit it, but uh, you, love, you would love the opportunity to have that much influence over 30 people, especially 30 beautiful people who are vying for your affection. See, talk about control. That's a lot of control. But then it also connects with our desire to be loved and be pursued and to be chosen. And we see ourselves in the contestants. We see ourselves in the contestants in our real lives as we're living our lives trying to impress potential suitors with our jobs, with our attractiveness, with our hobbies, with our personality. So when you read Esther chapter 2, you're going to see the same thing going on. You're going to see the same primal needs that we have to be loved and to be in control. And really, chapter 2 of Esther is really just a bachelor on a much larger scale, and that's much more sinister. Uh, So if you think the Bible is rated PG, uh, or perhaps even G, think otherwise. Uh, Today we'll prove that in the pudding. So let's read our text together. Verse 1. 
beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let there be cosmetics given them, and let the young woman who, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, uh, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, When the turn came for each woman to go in to King Xerxes, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shoshgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her in as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The word of the Lord. I told you it was The Bachelor, didn't I? I mean, that's what it was. But last week, uh, chapter one, what we saw, uh, we were introduced to one of the main characters in this book. It was King Xerxes. Uh, king Xerxes is the king of Persia. Persia was, uh, was a large, powerful empire during this time. The empire uh, to the east included present-day India, and to the west included Jerusalem up into Turkey. That huge empire was split up into 127 provinces. The king sends out to those leaders of those 127 provinces to say, come on in to Susa, which was the capital. It's where he lived. 
And he said, we're going to throw a huge party. And boy, it was a rager. Six months. And at the end of those six months, when they were good and drunk, the king doesn't want to just please their appetites for food and drink, but also wants to please these men's sexual appetites. So what does he do? He calls in the queen. When he calls in the queen, Queen Vashti, it wasn't for political purposes. It was for sexual purposes. And when she comes in, she refuses to abide by the king's demands. So she's banished, and she's banished forever from the king's presence. That happens in 483 B.C. What we read just now in chapter 2 happens in 479. So there's four years in between what happens in in chapter 1 and what happens in chapter 2. And in those four years, something really significant takes place. The war has taken place. The war between the Persians and the Greeks. The one that the king, that King Xerxes so badly wanted to fight. He wanted to defend his father's name. See, his father Darius was defeated by the Greeks. So he goes off to war and he's beaten and beaten badly. In fact, if you've ever seen the movie 300, I don't necessarily recommend it, but if you were to see the movie 300, it, is, it depicts one of the battles that happens in this war between the Greeks and the Persians. So Xerxes returns back to Susa. He's humiliated. He's, his, he's depleted the treasures of his empire, and he's depressed. In chapter 2, he just needs someone to affirm him. Now he's without a queen because he's removed that title from Vashti. He does have this huge harem of women, and you might think that he would get the affirmation he needs from them. But what he needs so much more than just to have his sexual appetite fulfilled is that he needs someone to stroke his ego. He needs someone to tell him that he's the man. He doesn't necessarily need someone to meet his physical desires. So here he is, in need of affirmation, humiliated, and as he draws up this plan, we know that Xerxes is all about plans. He had quite a plan in chapter 1. Now he's got another plan in chapter 2. And in this plan, to find a new queen is that he wants to bring in all the beautiful young virgins from throughout his empire. He's going to gather them up, and from among them, he's going to choose one of them to be the queen. Again, sounds like The Bachelor, doesn't it? But even for the Persians in 5th century B.C., this was an unconventional practice. Usually, the emperor would choose someone from a royal family. Usually, your class meant more than your appearance, but not for Xerxes. And that's how dark and sinister Xerxes has become. But it gets worse. He's not asking for beautiful volunteers He's essentially going out throughout his empire and he's abducting these beautiful young women from their families in order to use them for his own purposes. And once he has them all fetched, he houses them in his palace and they go through a year of beauty treatments before they spend their one evening with the king. And from the experiences that he has in this one night, with these women, he chooses one to be his queen. So this man is clearly delusional. He's sexist. He's exploitive. He's misogynistic in his behavior to the absolute nth degree. That's Xerxes. And in verse 5, we're introduced to a new character, the character of Mordecai. Mordecai, he lives in Susa too. He lives in the king's backyard. 
he lives in what is called the citadel. Now, usually the Jews uh, in Susa, they lived in the town of Susa, not in the citadel of Susa. The citadel is the center part. It's the part where all the powerful people reside. And so we know that about Mordecai, that he's one of the elites. We find something else about him by just looking at his name. Mordecai is the name of, uh, it comes from the word Marduk. Marduk was the, the, the lead god in the Persian religion. Kind of like being called Muhammad if you were Muslim. So he looks like he's a model Persian citizen because his name and based on where he lives. But then the author also goes out of his way to tell you in verse 5 that he is also a Jew. And he keeps going after verse 5 and ver- in, in 6 and following to say that he's aligned with the Jews who were a part of the captivity, were brought from Jerusalem into Babylon. So you've got this conflicted figure that he's a Jew and he's aligning himself with his heritage, but at the same time, it's his name. It's where he lives. He's Persian. These are the general things we know about him. What about something personal? The only thing we know personally about Mordecai was about this woman that he was raising. Her name is Esther. Esther in Persian. And her Jewish name was Hadassah. He, she is his younger cousin. And he takes her in because her parents have both died. And now he's treating her like his very own daughter. And the text says that she was lovely and form- she had a beautiful figure and she was lovely to look at. In other words, she's a great candidate for Xerxes to try on for size to be the next queen. So Xerxes takes Esther in to go undergo these years worth of treatments. But what would you do if you were Mordecai? This woman who's like your daughter is now being, for the most part, abducted by the queen or by the king. Well, Mordecai just lets her go. And doesn't that implicate Mordecai? How could this loving father figure subject his younger female cousin to this monster of a man? How could he, as a Jew, passively stand by and let a Gentile have his way with his Jewish cousin? You're waiting for him to have this Liam Neeson moment, aren't you? You're wanting to have him have this confrontation with these kidnappers, where, he, where he's going to unleash holy vengeance upon them, but it never happens. Why doesn't he encourage her to pull a Vashti? Why not flee the citadel of Susa and go to some far-off country to take cover and keep Esther safe? It sounds like Mordecai doesn't care, care, care for her very much at all. But that's not totally true. Verse 8 says that he treats her like a daughter. Verse 10 says that he's trying to protect her by telling her not to tell anyone in the palace that she's Jewish. Verse 11 says uh, that Mordecai frequently walked in front of the court of the harem to find out how Esther was doing and find out what's going on with her. So he cares deeply for her. So do you see how complex Mordecai is? But then there's Esther, and boy, is she complex. On one hand, you feel real sorry for her. She loses both her parents. Verse 8 says that she was taken. 
And neither of these were her decisions. They were forced upon her. But perhaps worst of all is that Esther is at the mercy of a ruthless, powerful, pagan king. Sure, he might have been defeated by the Greeks, but in Persia, he's still the man. They still view him as God. Everything in their society pointed to his immortality. They pointed to his total dominance in their world. So his power is immense. And if you or I were to live in that world where we were always reminded of the fact that he was God, it'd be no small thing to resist him. We'd probably just get swept up into it unknowingly. So we're more kind, Esther. So she is a victim, no doubt. But she's not merely a victim. She's not a mar- only a martyr. She's also a compromised character. You see, she commits adultery sleeping with this man who's not her husband. She then went on to marry him, even though he was a non-Jew. It's a gross violation of God's law. Moreover, it's obvious that she tries to be as attractive as possible for Xerxes. She works really hard during her season of preparation. And then she goes in for her night with the queen, and it's said that she won his grace and favor. We all know that. So if you want to use Esther as a positive example, what are you going to say to an 11-year-old girl in Sunday school? Use your body to advance in God's kingdom? Let the end justify the means? So you see, Esther's character is three-dimensional. She's in need of repentance on one hand, but you also have to see that she's been traumatized and broken and she's in need of healing on the other So now we have Mordecai and Esther. You see how they're really not that simple. They're not flat characters. And what the author is doing in chapter 2 is describing them in a morally ambiguous way because this is the way real life is in a broken and fallen world. And we live in this broken and fallen world too, and we're not flat, simple characters. Now, we'd really like to be, wouldn't we? You want to be a, a hero... A two-dimensional hero that you can admire yourself for nailing life. Or you just want to see yourself two-dimensionally as a sinner so that you can hate yourself for how you've missed the mark. Think about the way you view other people. You want heroes that you can look up to without having to nuance their blind spots. You really want to view others as demons... To give you a sense of superiority over them. But here's the truth. We are a mixed bag of motivations. Just like Mordecai and just like Esther. And this is affirmed in other places in the scripture. You go to Philippians 1. You look at Philippians 1 starting about verse 15. Paul's acknowledging that there's some who preach out of envy and rivalry. And then there are others who preach out of goodwill. And once he makes this differentiation, you're waiting for him because Paul tends to be uh, pretty direct. And when he gives you, uh, when he gives you a, a licking, he gives you a good licking. You're waiting for him to give a licking to those who preach out of envy and rivalry, and he never does. In fact, at the end of that little section, he says, I rejoice that the gospel is preached, whether in truth 
or in pretense. Mixed bag. Then you get to Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is giving his evaluation of the seven different churches. The first one that's listed is Ephesus. And he starts out by giving them a positive evaluation. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Now, if you were to move and uh, you came to me and said, uh, Marsh, uh, or Pastor Wimhoff, if you want to be like that. <laughs> Pastor Wimhoff, um, I'm moving to Atlanta. I'm moving to Minneapolis. I, I need some help finding a church. And if I were to say, hey, I, I, I know that there's a church up there uh, that works hard and that patiently is enduring and that cannot bear with those who are evil. You'd say, that sounds like a good church. And you know what? You'd be right. But then, as Jesus goes on evaluating this church in Revelation 2, he says this. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Repent, or I will remove myself from you. Huh. Sounds like a bad church, doesn't it? A church that doesn't love? Who would want to go there? So is it a good church or bad church, this church in Ephesus? Makes back. Then you come to Esther, and it's hard to know what to do with Esther. On the one hand, you feel really sorry for her because she's in this no-win predicament with this evil ruler named Xerxes. But on the other, you have a hard time respecting her for not standing up for herself like Vashti did. The same is true with the Philippian preachers. They're preaching this gospel. They're causing fruit to be born for the glory of God, but they're doing so with bad motives. It's hard to know what to do with these guys. Then you've got this church in Ephesus that's persevering in the midst of hardship, but they've lost their love for Jesus. Hard to know what to do with this church. So what does Jesus do with churches that are good and bad? What does Jesus do with gospel preachers who preach with impure motives? What does he do with women who are simultaneously victims and villains? He doesn't give up on them. He takes them by the hand. He takes them by the hand even though they're terribly needy and they're terribly rebellious. And friends, that's what God does with us too. See, one of the metaphors in the scripture to describe God's relationship with his people is that of marriage. You see it both in the Old and the New Testament. In this metaphor, God's always the bridegroom and his people are always the bride. And God is the one who comes to them and he says to his, his people, he says, you are my spouse and I approve of you. Now, if God came to you tonight and said, uh, and said that, my, if he came to you and said, you're going to be my spouse, I approve of you, you'd say, that sounds terrible. <laughs> now I've got to clean up ethically and morally to get ready for God, I think I'll just pass on this whole spouse thing with God. It sounds kind of weird anyways. But God doesn't wait for us to get our acts cleaned up before he takes us by the hand. He takes us with our mixed motives. He takes us with our misunderstanding. And that's grace, friends. He gives you grace when you don't ask for it. He gives you grace even though you don't appreciate it. And perhaps he's coming to you for the first time, maybe for the 500th time. And he's saying, you are my spouse. I approve of you. I have no 
you've blown it. But I'm going to take it from here. See, friends, it's exhausting to live like Esther looking for love. Go through your beauty treatments. Perform for would-be admirers. And what happens? It leaves you empty. Because you were made to be a spouse with God. His love's unconditional. His love's sacrificing. And he died to make you his. But what we'll find out in Esther is that God doesn't only choose broken and sinful people to love. He also equips them to be used in the world. See, what you'll see later in the book is that he uses Esther to save this entire Jewish nation. It's a huge accomplishment. So here's the conclusion. What makes our impact in the world valid is not the quality of our motive, but the providence of God. So if you've been asking yourself, how am I going to be used in the world? There's no way I could be an Amachi mentor. (laughs) There's no way that God could even use me in the lives of my own kids. God could never use me at my job. I just show up and get a paycheck. Well, if you're waiting around for God to use you when you have perfectly pure motives, it's never going to happen. You're always, always going to stay stuck. But if you look at your past and you think about your motives being perfectly pure in regards to something that you did for Jesus, you're a fool. They were mixed. You did it in vainglory. You did it for the approval of others. Brothers and sisters, there's just always room for repentance, so cheer up. You're joined to a God who can work with three-dimensional people who are combinations of glory and shame, of love and hate, and pride and humility. And that's really good news, isn't it? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. You can use us in our mixed motives. Uh, Lord, that's what we see here. Lord, not only use us, but love us. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that you, by your Spirit, uh, would tell us just that, that you can work with us, that you'll have us. In Christ's name, amen.